Join me in prayer. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you for um, the truth that you are at work in our hearts. Uh, you are moving at the place where we make decisions, where we find our motivation. Father, I do pray that you would indeed work today, uh, that we could truly say that we are um, being transformed uh, daily. I, I want to thank you for my friends, that we are uh, before you. Your, your gaze looks deep into our, our lives, but you are compassionate and merciful and active And so uh, we cry out to you, continue your work of grace among us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, I hope you're doing well. We're continuing in the the book of James, uh, and we are looking at a pretty challenging text there, uh, James uh, 4, uh, 11, and uh, following there, and um, actually we're going to go, actually I'll read a part of James 5, and uh, so you have your Bible so you can read along with me a little bit later. Um, recently, I was on a, a Delta flight about, I guess about, when it was our flight back from Presbytery about a month ago, and uh, I have some cookies from, from Delta. You all were in Delta, weren't you? Right? Okay. So uh, these are the cookies they serve. Uh, Biscoff is the, is the company, and... Uh, it caught my attention because I can earn miles with Biscoff. I can earn miles by eating cookies. Um, and I, re- I read the details. And uh, you actually log on to the uh, website for Biscoff. And uh, then apparently somehow you prove your flight and uh, they're going to add a few more points because you can show that you ate their cookie or something like that. And it, it sort of mystified me that... In, in even eating a cookie, um, which is hopefully a, a pleasurable event in itself, uh, it's enough of a reward, wouldn't you say? And I have to have some appeal for me to have some further benefit uh, to log on and get a few Delta miles with my, with my cookie. And I thought, what an interesting thing that is happening in our day and age where it's extremely hard to, to do anything without a reference to ourselves, without um, a, a comment uh, that we say on a social media uh, site. Uh, we are continually evaluating something, whether or not it's working for us or doesn't work for us. And the self is, uh, is very much part of our culture. What, what a, perhaps a simple idea to start off with, with, with a message, but... When I listen carefully to what you just heard uh, from James about uh, problems with the tongue, about people who are predicting their futures, and uh, when I think about what James is actually saying, it's very countercultural to the message that we're hearing about ourselves. Uh, last week, I mentioned this quote, and now this quote is available on a card for you, and I hope that you were able to get one this morning or get one on your way out this morning, and just to get a little more mileage out of this quote from David Pallison. He says, you will always desire, love, trust, believe, fear, obey, long for, value, pursue, hope, and serve something. 
And uh, we are active at the level of our hearts. And this morning, uh, we're going to see that activity show up in a rather negative way. And uh, I hope that we, I, can, I can unpack this for you in such a way that we could see some of the, some of the spiritually positive reasons why James would, would do this. But there is an extraordinary presumption going on in the text that we are looking at this morning. James 4, 11 through James 5, uh, verse 6. Presumption of speech, presumption about the future, and presumption about, about wealth. And for all these things, we need a deep work of God's grace. Listen to verse 11 of James chapter 4. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? James is a veteran pastor who has been around Christians for a while. And he speaks directly to an issue, the, the speech that can inhabit uh, a church, that can, uh, can become part of the life of, of, of a Christian. Uh, in fact, the word evil there in verse 11 is actually could be translated slander. Do not slander one another. Do not misrepresent one another. Uh, even with something truthful, do not seek to use it in order to discredit someone else. Those who slander are actually taking the position, James argues, of not uh, of no longer being under the law, but actually above it. They are, they are becoming judges. James is seeking to wake up his audience to the dominance of the self, of, the, of how the self can control, how sin can actually control the very things we're saying. And those who behave this way have lost a sense of a God-fearing center and isn't that true of, of us all? When we begin to speak uh, negatively and poorly about others, it is almost always related to proximity. Uh, people who are close by. Have you ever been on a, on a road trip? Uh, nine hours stuck in the car with, uh, with some people? Uh, proximity plays a role in, in the disagreements and uh, the kind of language that may be used. Or perhaps not used, but, but thought about. Proximity plays a key role. Proximity in the church. This is why some people keep a arm's length distance because they don't want to get too close. They'll enjoy some aspects of church life, but not get, not get too close. One of the commentaries I read uh, on this passage said this. Many slanderers probably are unaware that they are spreading falsehoods. They believe their negative accusations and censorious remarks to be reasonably well-founded. And they may even see themselves as having a special calling to inform the world of someone's evil or to preserve a church's purity by excising or cutting out its less-than-perfect members. When I read this passage uh, 
I, I wonder how am I going to, how's this going to work? Uh, how, how, how's it, I, I got to preach on this. What are we can do with this. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought I was, I'm thankful that James put this, I'm thankful that God inspired James, and this is part of our Bible. Uh, I think it's good that we have frank discussion about our speech in the church. And I also want to propose to you that actually what you see described in James 4, 11, and 12 is the easy way out. That doesn't take any particularly uh, 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 well-honed virtue. Uh, that is not even a Christian thing to do. Uh, it doesn't require a cross. It doesn't require self-denial. In fact, uh, there's plenty of religions that actually do that stuff. Wouldn't you agree? And go even beyond just condemning, actually murdering. And certainly there are times and low points in the church's life when people and movements have engaged in some pretty terrible stuff. But I'm going to propose to you that's the easy way out. And the hard way out is restoring people. The harder way out is described in Galatians 6.1. If anyone is caught in transgression or sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. That's the hard way. The easy way is judging. The easy way is putting someone in their place. The easy way is assuming that you can uh, condemn. That's the easy way. The harder way is much more difficult. It requires love. It requires time, patience, thoughtfulness, prayer. Restoring someone is like the gospel. Restoring someone is like our God. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We sang already a number of those themes, how safe we are, how God has protected us, how we are safe in the gospel, how beautiful the gospel is. But in what, what James is describing is that the gospel is good for the person who judges, but it's too good for you. And what's, that's the easy way out. That's the easy way out. What a beautiful church to be part of that is committed to restoring people, to moving towards sinners, to actually have a church where we are being equipped on how to do that. It is not easy, by the way. It requires training, prayer, thoughtfulness, listening. The idea of restoring someone else, of not writing them off. That's a beautiful, beautiful church, very very difficult, requires a lot of heart vigilance. John Stott says, uh, there is a dreadful lack of self-knowledge behind every judgment passed on a fellow Christian. A dreadful lack of self-knowledge. And so, perhaps one of the things that we, we come away with already is that I'm actually actively resisting this kind of spirit within me. I have that spirit within me to condemn and to judge. I, I, I am like Cain in that way. Uh, offended, easily offended, taking offense, and willing to di- dish out my, my justice or what I perceive to be justice. Now, what's the, what's the call here, Pastor James? What are you after? You are after us grasping a greater self-awareness 
where we place ourselves once again under the radical mercy of God. You today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the recipient of the radical mercy of God. And your engagement with every Christian from this point on, your engagement with every non-Christian from this point on, is that of one who was desperate and was given mercy when you should have had judgment. You escaped. You're at a party you shouldn't be invited to. You are safe when you should have been in danger. This is the stance of our heart that needs to be maintained. It's not easy. What brings about this self-awareness, this humility? It is repentance. Repentance where I see how I am violating God's law myself, even while I sense the, the impulse to dispense law towards someone who I disapprove of. We are wired for law in our relationships. Think about the last argument you had, perhaps with your spouse or someone at work or some some disagreement. It was a way of doing something. There was a way of being, and you or they violated the law. I often refer to the, the marital counseling that I had where the husband had a grudge against his wife for over a year because she... She ruined the Tupperware, and she put it on the, on the bottom of the dishwasher, and everyone knows that the Tupperware goes on the, on the top, right? And so for a year, uh, he had held this grudge against his wife. And uh, I actually said in the counseling session, I said, so you have Tupperware righteousness. That's, I mean, this is, this is how, in other words, he was interacting with his wife, not on grace, but on the basis of law, we're wired for that. We're not wired for grace. I'm glad that James is actually preaching and teaching and including this in his letter because it, it, it should bring about a repentance such that when we look at our brother's fault, we begin to see a speck. It's a speck, but it's still a speck. It's a sliver And as we begin to repent of our own failing to meet God's standard, we begin to see the log in our own eye. And that is very, very difficult, easy to preach about, but the heart, every heart avoids this. Now, some of you are very, very polite. You you were raised well. You know, you just don't say this kind of stuff, James 4, 11, and 12. You don't say it out loud but you think it. And you're, you're cool, and you look good, but you're thinking it. You rumble in your heart about what you'd want to say, but you were just raised not to say that kind of stuff. But your pride and your need to be humble is just as intense as the person who stumbles and says it. You see, you may be quietly pleased that you're not like that person who's obviously a sinner, And messing up. But what you need is not indifference to them. You need burning love toward them. And in the famous evangelist George Whitfield, Tim Keller notes how he took an inventory of his day. At nighttime, he would review in his mind areas where he needed to repent. And he took this inventory every night. And he he wrote, this is George Whitfield, famous evangelist, he wrote, God, give me a deep humility and a burning love. Listen to that. 
a deep humility and a burning love, a well-guided zeal and a single eye, and then, and then let men and devils do their worst. It's not enough that we are just polite church people because you can be indifferent to the call of God. It's not enough that we just breathe a sigh of relief and say, wow, I haven't slandered anybody. I can't even think of a time when I've done that. The heart can still be very indifferent. And indifference is not enough. Tim Keller goes on in terms of repentance, and he says this, Have I spoken or thought unkindly of someone? Am I justifying myself by caricaturing them in my mind? In other words, I'm making them out to be worse than they really are, but that always helps me because then I feel good about myself. Have I been impatient or irritable? Have I been self-absorbed and indifferent and inattentive to people? See, these are, the, these are the hard questions that, you know what, you just need them to be asked in church once in a while. Because we won't normally ask those of ourselves, those kinds of questions. We need fellowship groups, small groups. We need people. We need elders. We need James. We need this kind of talk. Lest we just go on our way and just kind of be nice folks with a nice church when really the heart itself is not being moved to repentance and thinking great about the grace of God. So repent like this. This is Keller continuing on with Keller's thoughts about repentance. Consider the free grace of Jesus until there is A, no coldness or unkindness. Think of the sacrificial love of Christ for you. B, no impatience. So you just keep just sit in your room and wait until you're not patient, impatient before you enter into your day and then see no indifference. So we work at this. We consider the free grace of God until we show warmth and affection. God was infinitely patient and attentive to me out of grace. You see, here is the deal. All of our words in church, in the Christian life, as Christians, all of our words are to be redemptive. All of them. Because God's words toward you are redemptive, restorative. They are still redemptive. They're restorative right now. And all conflict in the church is to be redemptive conflict. Purposeful, good. And so... The presumption that I can take the role of judge, the presumption that I can control the issues, the presumption that I can stand as judge over someone else is deeply prideful and opposed to the very core of what the gospel is all about. So that's the presumption of speech, the presumption of speech. James, this wise veteran pastor, has seen this in his dealings with Christians. Then the other area is this presumption about the future. That's in verse 13. And and here he's talking about business people who travel. He's observed how people who are merchants think about their days. And and let's let's look at this for a moment. Look, Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say... And now he's quoting them. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is, it is sin. Presumption about the future. About the future. People uh, who have a handle on how to sell stuff, they've done the, they've done their, the analysis of the town, the demographics, the, their product, they know it's going to work. And they begin to presume about how it's all going to go. They've got it. They're there for 12 months. They're going to figure this out. And they know that certain amount of effort and time, it's going to pay off. They're going to have the future figured out. And James catches people and says, whoa, wait a minute here. You are living like practical atheists. You're trusting in your plans. You're trusting in your abilities. And he tosses this cold water on them with a really tough question. What is your life? What are you able to maintain with your life? Don't you realize that your life is like mist? It's like smoke. You can't maintain your life. You can't sustain your life. And here is that presumption, the presumption that we can maintain the future Again, this resistance to humility. Um, just this month, earlier, earlier this month, the, uh, the Apple developers all got together, Apple computers all got together at the Moscone Center in San Francisco. They've been doing this for like 30-plus years, and new products are announced and new stuff's announced. And Well, uh, I, I was thinking about uh, someone gets on stage. You are all familiar with right? Steve, Steve Jobs when he introduced the iPhone and that kind of thing. This is when, this is when that stuff happens. I was thinking about what would happen if a great humility came over Apple. It's a great humility. And, and uh, one, of the, one of the individuals on, on the stage has, has just millions of people watching them. And uh, they, they, they say something like this. Well, we're just taking it a day at a time now. It's really hard to predict the future. And we're trying to take a more humble approach to our planning. So uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And just step off the stage. Now, you just don't do that if you're a tech giant. You own the future. You make the future happen. Someone once said that technology is our new metaphysic. Uh, this is the, the physic this is the real world, physic, and meta is above us, like things like well, love or truth or what are right, the above stuff. You can't quite see it. Well, it used to be that metaphysics was like a category at the bookstore, right, where you read about spirituality and prayer and religious things. Well, the new metaphysic is technology. You want to explain life? Well, it's all found in technology. The future is under control because of Google or Microsoft or Apple or whatever company there is. This is the day in which we live. Well, all such boasting, James says, is evil. How about that? It's quite shocking, isn't it? Because we're used to the idea of planning and controlling and thinking about the future and uh, manipulating the future, or uh, if, if we would be so brave to be that honest. I have a cousin who's... Uh, an organic gardener, no, not gardener, a farmer. And uh, his name is Brad Johnson. Uh, he's a little bit older than I. And way back, 
when no one even knew what organic farming was, uh, Brad started uh, farming. And um, organic farming is simply something he thought was the way you do it. Uh, it just meant he didn't like pesticides, uh, and he thought, hey, look, we'll just control the bugs, which destroy the plants anyway. And so he figured out these ways and didn't learn from other organic farmers and stuff. And um, it's, it's kind of fun to talk to my cousin Brad because uh, you would think this was someone who's been organic farming for 40 years or so, um, you'd think he'd be pretty confident. And to talk to him is very, very interesting. He'll say things like this. He'll say, well... I don't know, last summer we worked a lot on the tomatoes, did a lot of fertilizing, and we did a lot of prep on those tomatoes, but they came out about half the size they should be, and they didn't have a good taste. I don't know what the deal is. And then this year we didn't put any effort in the tomatoes, and they're incredible. They're like, they're the biggest I've ever seen and the, the best I've ever had. In other words, he sees some of his effort kind of work, and then he sees a lot of his effort not work. In fact, he's kind of this very frustrated but also humble person. I don't know. I'm just, I, I, I do watering. Um, I make sure there's not enough, too many bugs around. And you know what happens? The plants grow and there's fruit and there's vegetables. Meaning, I don't know, I, you got any ideas? I don't know, what do you think? Will this help the cucumbers? I don't know. Mine. This is, you talk to someone who's been doing this 40 years. You'd think you'd walk through sort of warehouses of, of stuff, of, of things that he's developed and how ingenious he is and how, how, uh, what a master gardener or farmer he is. He can write down all his insights into organic farming on a three-by-five card. It, I, I, what I'm saying is that, is that it's shocking to be around someone who's truly humble and humbled by what it is they do, because it is perhaps the farmer who teaches us most. You can't control the future. There might be some freak weather thing. There might be something that no one can explain, but the cucumbers just didn't grow this year. That is humbling. And James is driving home this point. You who have it all together, you, you're able to sell stuff. You're, you, you move and sh- you're the mover and shakers of the world and you go into places and things happen. And James stops and says, it, it ain't so. You don't maintain your life. You are a vapor. And you know what's interesting? He uses this rhetorical question, what is your life? And I was thinking about the role of the church to just ask good questions. The idea that we just are able to ask good questions that have to do with the heart, have to do with the future, have to do with our lives. And it's quite remarkable how little people spend, how much little time they spend on asking good questions about their own lives. The people you work with, I don't, I'm not sure they're really asking good questions about their lives. They need someone like you to come along at a, at a nice, uh, opportune loving moment to begin to ask a good drop a good question in there particularly people who have tried hard at their careers who have worked hard for 20 plus years and they're beginning to ask questions uh, 
I've already got this. I've already acquired this. I already have this. And it didn't do much for me. Our, we, we are tenuous. Our, our existence is, is not, there's no guarantee. And you have a, a, a role with your friends. You have a role with people you know. You're kind of like a prophet in that sense to ask a good question once in a while like James is doing. And maybe it is perhaps through some humility that we demonstrate that there will be a bit more authenticity and a little less self being communicated in our mannerisms and the way we conduct ourselves. But let me just ask a couple of questions on this idea. Where are you presuming right now about your own future? Is, is God in there? Are you, do you have this dependent heart if the Lord wills? What are you thinking about your future right now? And is God at the center of it? And what does that do that God would be at the center of it? Does it bring greater peace? And here's another one. Consider the bright future you have that is assured to you because of the high cost of Jesus and his death for you. You see, he purchased the future for you. The future doesn't happen because you're, you're skilled or went to the right college or... or, or, or have all these credentials. The future happens because Jesus has compassion on us. And it will be good and it will be bright. And then here's just a passage, and I recognize we didn't read this out loud before we got started here, but it's, it's in James 5. James 5, verse 1, listen to this. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Wow. James has observed people who were rich landowners who had people work for them, who mowed their fields, who took care of their crops, who brought in the profits that they enjoyed. James had observed that these people had become self-indulgent. And he warns them of great great uh, sorrows ahead for them should they not repent. And what would be the evidence brought against them? It would be the things that they hoarded. It would be the things that they loved, jewelry, gold. And James argues that actually a corrosion will come over their gold and that corrosion will be an evidence against them. And it is true that gold can survive for many, many hundreds of years, but gold can corrode. And James is arguing that ultimately what you put yourself into, what you have invested yourself into, will become corroded and will not deliver you. 
It's interesting that if we take these three subjects, uh, the slanderer that we talked about, uh, we talk, or, or the traveling merchant who's confident about the future, or these who are wealthy landowners, all of them have sort of this, this sort of this self-protectiveness about it. Although all three have a connected self-protectiveness. They can't see. They can't see. They're blinded. The, the one who condemns others is blinded about their true standing before the holy, holiness of God. The, the, the one who is so confident about the future can't see how tenuous life is. And the landowner who is, who's now hoarding their wealth, they, they can't see that this is, isn't going to sustain them. And James finishes this section with a, with a strong exhortation. Consider the outcome of all that you're pursuing. You have ultimately refused life to people. You see, what you've done is you've withheld life-giving financial resources for people. You've defrauded them. And that's why James argues that these land barons have, have, have committed the violation of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Oh, it's not that they've taken a life away immediately, but through oppression, year by year by year, they have robbed people and destroyed lives by by degrees. So let me just wrap this up. A couple of themes here and then a couple of takeaways and then we'll be done. Moving from the wealthy backwards up to the other, other subjects. Here the wealthy, there's this huge blind spot. They want to control things. The traveling merchants want to control tomorrow. And the condemning slanderer wants to control by dispensing judgments. There's a theme of self-assurance in these passages. The one who judges is self-assured. The one who travels and boasts about their sales is self-assured. And the one who amasses wealth is self-assured. The effect on people in these three subjects is devastating. The dispenser of judgment, of course, brings shame upon others. The traveling merchant, well, we're not quite sure how their impact on others would be, but they certainly would carry themselves with arrogance and point to themselves as the, as the source of their success. And so sort of the smell they give off is one of self-centeredness. And, of course, the wealthy, their effect on people is, is oppression. Of course, the, all of these things could be could have been used for good. Wealth can be used for good. Wealth can be used as a tremendous gift for, for good purposes. And of course, the humble person who travels and does business in another town, they, they can be a gift to others. It can be used as, their skills can be used as a, a gift to, to bless others. And, and think, of the, think of the power of words that are redemptive. What a, what a beautiful thing that is when words are used for for good purposes. So really, in the end, let me wrap this up by asking, why is it important that passages like this are in our Bible? Brutally honest, difficult passages. I'm going to suggest that they're in our Bibles so we can understand the depth of our need. 
If you do not understand the depth of your need, you will not be experiencing spiritual renewal. Spiritual renewal is an excitement about how big the cross is and how big a sinner you are. Now, to get those two things right is not easy, and you need the grace of God, but part of it is an honest self-examination. And John Calvin put it this way, and he describes the kinds of things that James is talking about. And he says it this way. Follow this with me. Our poverty conduces to a clearer display of the infinite fullness of God. Listen to this. Thus, a sense of our ignorance, this is James 4 and 5, vanity, poverty, infirmity, depravity, and corruption, it's going to get good, hang on, leads us to perceive and acknowledge that in the Lord alone are to be found true wisdom, solid strength, perfect goodness, and unspotted righteousness. Nor can we really aspire toward him till we have begun to be displeased with ourselves. You see what a a strange and unusual blessing this is. To hear these difficult words from James... And, and we might, our first instinct might be, Pastor Todd, I want to be built up. I came to church to be inspired. And this is so negative. And God is going to give you a greater inspiration, if that's a word you want to use, and a greater blessing than you could ever have imagined as you woke up this morning. He's going to let you see for a moment, and it will be painful, what you truly are like and what Jesus is like as a Savior. That's the sinner Jesus saved. And I want him to save one who was, certainly needed him to get to heaven, but I was pretty squeaky clean, wasn't I, Jesus? Isn't that how we usually think in the church? Of course we need Jesus to get into heaven. But, and it's right there that we estimate ourselves too greatly. And God wants to build a foundation of humility. Like a farmer in the central California Valley. I don't know. I can't attribute my success to myself. I can't attribute my being in the kingdom to myself. I don't have the virtue. James, you don't know the half of it. And it's from here that gospel renewal happens. where you can take the criticism of someone who wants to condemn you and say, you don't know the half of it. I want to move toward you like my God moved toward me in Jesus. It's not easy, not easy. But this is the the gospel at the heart level. Gospel at the heart level. Gospel at the heart level. 
nor can we really aspire toward him till we have begun to be displeased with ourselves. What is going on in this passage in James? These are people who do not accurately see themselves. And it leads to all kinds of trouble. Parents, do you not see this in your children? Our Heavenly Father sees this in us and wants us to see something more clear of ourselves that we could see how great our salvation is and live according to it. Let's pray.